please pronounce your name correctly for me. Vanessa Hallett. And you have a very impressive title. Officially, you are the Worldwide Head of Photographs and Deputy Chairwoman, comma, Americas. Is that right? Of Phillips. Of Phillips. <laughs> but now, is it Phillips Auction House or Phillips or what? How Because, like, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, where there's a Phillips seafood place. So, like, what's the, what's the proper title for Phillips? Phillips. Phillips. That is the name of the company, and we are Fine Art Auction House. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> no, you know, once in a while, we might get a phone call for Phillips, the electric company, electronics company, but yes, we are the auction house. No, the place in Baltimore, Maryland had great crabs and lobster. Like, that was what I, so I grew up with that as my Phillips, not these other, these other random companies. <laughs> well, Phillips actually has been around for well over 100 years. So hopefully with our, our current marketing and press, people will think of us first over who live in Maryland over the Lobster House. <laughs> we can try. Sorry, no. Crab houses always come first in Maryland. Sorry, nothing personal. <laughs> All right. We're going to get a rep there immediately and change that. Just kidding. Good luck. Yeah, they <laughs> love their crabs in Maryland. But anyways, all right. So going back to you, your background. So like, I mean, you you are currently in the, in the auction industry, but like, how do you come to that? Like, wh were you uh, like fascinated with history or auctions as a child? Like, what was the thing that got you involved in all this? Were, were your parents into it or some schooling? Like, what was the path? I had never heard of an auction house when I was younger, so it was not the chosen career path for me. I wanted to be a teacher, <laughs> an art history teacher, so there's some connection. No, I had never heard of an auction house, and I had a great AP art history teacher in high school, so it really did start there. You know, teachers make the course. I happen to have a great one. I then went to college knowing I wanted to major in art history. I majored in art history. I enjoyed majoring in art history. But the interesting thing is I didn't study anything in college that is applicable now to what I'm doing in the sense of I was focusing on impressionism art. There's not even impressionism department at Phillips. So my focus was on paintings when really now I'm more involved in photographs, design, contemporary art. After I graduated from Colgate University, I was looking for a job in the arts, like anyone else who wants to work in the field. And as we all know, that's not easy to get your first job in the arts. It's very competitive. A lot of people have connections, which is nothing wrong with that. I just did not have those connections. I had no way to get my foot in the door. So I was just applying to anything and everything. And then a few non-art jobs just because I was needed to work. And I was confused. I just graduated from college. I was young. And so I actually did get a job after applying to maybe 50 places. But it was the one of like the five jobs I'd applied to that was not arts related. <laughs> so I went through the full process and then it was like to go through files for the FBI on not and nothing crime related. But oh. and then at the end, the guy sat down. I mean, it's a division of the police department, pretty much. And he's like, it doesn't feel like your heart is in this. And I was like, you know what? It's not. I really want to work in the arts. And that was like a big I mean, it seems so obvious, but. It was such a wake-up call, like focus on what you want to do and maybe I won't make a salary my first year out of college and maybe that's, maybe that's okay if I can figure out another way to have some income and then pursue what I want to do. I ended up taking an internship at the Peabody Essex Museum. That's in Peabody, Massachusetts. Oh, sorry, it's in Salem, Massachusetts. Yes, please do not offend Massachusetts people. They will be very <laughs> upset. Actually, Salem is awesome. So I would never want to offend people there. But I had a college boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, who was doing a doctorate in Boston. So even though I was from New York City, I had someone in that place. So I was applying to jobs in Boston and New York. And so I ended up moving to Boston, working for a catering company like five days a week in the evenings, just so I can do my internship at the Peabody Essex Museum that wasn't even in Boston that I had to commute to. But the point is, I knew what I wanted to do, and that was exciting. And I was so lucky to get that internship. I loved it. I gave tours of historic houses and it was great. What was also really great about it is I realized the museum world was not for me. I didn't know that before I took that internship. I thought a museum, awesome. It's a great museum. And then once I was there, I realized it wasn't the right environment for me. And I started thinking about it and I was very fortunate because it was actually my mother 
who said, you know what, there's a graduate program at Sotheby's Institute in New York. Maybe you should apply for that. I am fascinated by the Sotheby's Institute. I mean, I've read about it. I know people who've graduated from it. I'm not even sure what exactly they teach. <laughs> like, I mean, it, the, <laughs> the assumption would be they teach the auction world since it's run by Sotheby's. Okay, so let me continue then. <laughs> um, so to the answer to your first question was, how did you find out about auction houses? That's how I found out. It was through my mother and I got lucky. I did apply. And it was a different program than it is today, 100% different, run by a different institution. But at the time, it was only 25 students a year, and you traveled around the U.S. learning about different mediums, focused on American art only. The crazy thing is I went in for the interview, and the man I interviewed with, you know, so what are you doing? And I said, I'm interning at the Peabody Essex Museum. And he goes, stop. That's my favorite museum in all of America. You know, it's like, that's the stuff that makes things happen. And so we had a really good interview. And because of the internship, I got into that program. So if I hadn't moved to Boston, hustled working seven days a week at this catering company, just so I could also do the internship. And I was working seven days a week for a full year. That was my in just to get into a graduate program. So then I could get my first entry level job in the arts. A lot of it working in the arts is about putting your time in. Oh, what is the Sotheby's Institute? So at the time, we had experts in all these different mediums, again, American art only, but we studied everything from colonial furniture to contemporary art. And you just had the best experts in New York City kind of speaking to us on all the different mediums from glass, porcelain, furniture, etchings, photographs, paintings, weaving, and all these other mediums, honestly, I've forgotten about, but they're really interesting to learn about when it's like the best person in the industry talking to you about it. Remember, it's like what I said earlier, for me, it's always the teacher that makes the course. So when you have someone talking to you about like a silver cup, I actually like silver, but the point is, if someone's talking to you about something's kind of simple, you think might not be so exciting, it could be fascinating when someone wants it to be, and they can share that enthusiasm with you and the, the marks and the history. And so the course is very beneficial for me. And that led directly on to then coming into a job or like, did you then continue on with your catering? Oh, no, the catering was in Boston. So I moved okay, back sorry. to New York for the course. Now, I was very fortunate because I was able, I was only able to do the course um, because my grandma had passed away six months prior and had left me just enough money to pay the tuition for the course. Um, and again, you know, everything happens for a reason. And everyone's circumstances are different. So I was very fortunate. And I also could live at home because I'm from Manhattan. So I was living at home. Again, that was really fortunate. For my friends that were not living at home, which were most of them, some of them, a lot of them did have side jobs during the year. And I'm just bringing it up because I just want to kind of say something for the arts. Sometimes people think when you go into these graduate programs or you have these internships, a lot of people assume people aren't doing anything on the side to make more money to actually pay for themselves. And a lot of people actually, not everybody, but the point is a slice of people are. People do work hard to work in the arts, a lot of them. And I just want to always bring attention to those people because I feel like they get forgotten about very often. So while I was in the Sotheby's program, because I didn't have to have a side job because I was living at home, I wanted to look into internships within the arts. Even though I was in full-time graduate school, I still wanted to get going. The whole point for me of going to graduate school was to get an entry-level job in the arts. That's still my goal. That's so sad that a master's degree is to get an entry-level job. You know, everyone's circumstances and every state is different, and God knows this and that. A lot of people don't have to do that. I did. So that's my experience. I walked out of my master's program and I had nothing waiting for me. And, and I had to, I had to actually, literally, I created a nonprofit organization just to give myself a job. That's actually amazing. That's fantastic. If it was, if it went well, I would agree with you. I, I was horrible <laughs> at it. Like, okay, it, well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I loved it. It was great fun, but like, I was so bad at it. So one of the speakers that spoke to us in the program was named Diana Phillips, just a coincidence, her last name was Phillips, and she was worldwide head of press at Sotheby's at the time. And I found her so enthralling to listen to, and her career was so interesting. And as a woman, I just really looked up to her. And so after her lecture later that day, I sent her an email 
letting her know I was in that course she had just spoken to, how impressed I was with her. Truthfully, I wanted to have a career like hers. I just put it all out there. And I said, can I work for you for free for the rest of the year while I'm in this program? And she said, yes. And that was really getting my foot in the door for the first time somewhere. It was unpaid. I was an intern, though, in the press office at Sotheby's. And it was a really interesting experience. It was a challenging experience. And then once the program finished, they brought me on as a temporary worker in the department. And there I got my job. That was my first job after graduate school. You're very lucky. A lot of people walk out of graduate schools with no jobs waiting for them. Absolutely. I felt really fortunate. I really did. I was still a temporary worker at Sotheby's. I wasn't a full-time employee, so I still didn't have benefits and, you know, (laughs) vacation. (laughs) So I still needed that full-time job, but I was happy with what I had while I had it. And in the meantime, I was applying to full-time positions at Sotheby's and all other companies in New York City. I was reaching out to contacts. And one of the most successful reach outs for me was I contacted the Colgate University Alumni Center and I said, can you give me a list of all of the Colgate alumni working in the arts in New York City? And then they sent me a list. It was pretty large. And then I kind of circled those that had careers that looked interesting to me. And then I contacted about 30 people and asked if they'd meet with me for an informational discussion, not asking for a job, just to be clear. I think that's that's not the right avenue to go. And it really was informational. I wanted to hear about the galleries, museums, art companies they worked for to hear if it was something of interest to me. And so those went really well. And one of the women I spoke with worked at Phillips. And I liked what she said, and it sounded really interesting. And I was already at Sotheby's in that temp position. I said, it should, as I said to those whose position sounded interesting, I said, if anything should open in the future, will you please consider me or think of me or just forward me the job application really is what I was asking. And everyone said, sure, and I'm sure everyone forgot. But then every three months, I followed up with those I'm most interested in. And, you know, nine months later, one of those emails to her, and she said, hey, actually, I think there is an opening for the administrative position in the photographs department at Phillips. And then I applied for it, and I got the job. I think you are literally the first person I've ever heard that used an alumni list to do (laughs) something like this. Like, I mean, it makes perfect sense, but like, I never would have thought to do that. Yeah, I don't even keep in touch with my schools, (laughs) (laughs) which is bad. I probably should have. And then something to mention, the other students in the class who I went to school with, they're some of my best sources right now in the art industry because we spent a whole year together really learning and just getting to know each other so well that there's an inherent trust. And so if any of them, for the galleries they work at or the businesses they work at, we always trust each other and can have conversations and discuss the industry and learn from each other. It's a very important network to me. Well, it's interesting because I recently had a conversation with somebody where they were talking about master's programs or higher education of any sort beyond undergraduate and how as much as the education you get while you're there is important, the people, your peers, the people you're in classes with are almost more important because they're the people who are going to go along with you and and grow in their careers or and they're going to become your peer group and your confidants and things like this. And nobody told me that when I was in grad school, but it makes complete sense now. Not to go backwards too much, but something else I meant to mention, because this is students are listening to this, correct? I would assume as much. I hope so. What was really important about my time at Sotheby's was after the press office, I worked in client services. So I was literally the woman sitting at reception on the different floors, you know, welcoming people and answering the phones and literally doing whatever they wanted and being polite about it. I worked with each department for their department viewings and their auctions. And I started to learn there's actually a very different feel to each clientele for the different medium. So like the clients who came for the impressionist sales were very different from those for the porcelain sales. And I started realizing it's very important that I realize who I want to work with in the industry and not just the object. I want to hear more about that what, because I, that's one of those interesting things. Like, like, who are the collectors for these things? So you're saying there's literally like a difference in the collector. I don't even know what, but I'm sure you'll tell me between like somebody who collects impressionist paintings versus somebody that collects porcelain versus obviously with your field, somebody that collects photography. What are some of the differences? Like, I, I'm, I really want to know. Well, 
I'll talk about photographs because that is my industry now and that's the one I know best. When I went through this process at Sotheby's, I kind of narrowed it down because again, I'm trying to get a full-time job. I'm not being picky. <laughs> um, I narrowed it down to five like fields I'd pursue if I got a job in them, one of them being photographs. And the reason I chose photographs as one of those fields is the collectors were more laid back. They were just super calm. They were kind of co- just really cool people. And I just felt like I had a good vibe with them and got along with them really well. So that was immediately, you know, even though it wasn't necessarily anything I ever thought I'd focus on in life, like a photograph specialist, after doing the course and having someone speak to me about photographs and they were interesting and then seeing the clients were so, you know, enjoyable to be around, I was like, yes, I love photographs. I love the industry. All right, not to be pedantic, but when you say cool, like, I mean, is it, are they younger? Is it, is it, um, like, what about the people who collect photography is, I guess, sort of unique or different? Like, is there any special characteristics? Because, like, a lot of people say, like, photography is like an introduction into collecting art because it's editions and so it's less expensive than sculptures and paintings and all the big, very expensive stuff. So, like, is it that kind of thing? Like, there's a little bit lower stakes because a lot of the stuff is less expensive. So they're a little bit more relaxed. Like, what is it about them? They enjoyed engaging on the topic and going into more like intellectual detail on the photographers and their careers. Nice. It's good to know. It's very interesting. A lot of our collectors are doctors. I don't know the exact correlation, but it's something about it. I mean, you'd be shocked on the percentage of our buyers, our bigger buyers that are professionals. And obviously, I'm obsessed with my medium and the collectors. And I'm an advocate for them. And I just learned so much from my colleagues and the collectors. And I love that back and forth we give each other. Doctors. And now, yeah, I, uh, I'm not sure why, but somehow that makes sense. Yeah, I can go with that. Well, there's technology involved with the cameras through the decades. And you could see something of them appreciating science. And there's, there's something there. I don't have the end answer, but. Well, and x-rays. I mean, there is that relationship in there, too. So, like, I mean, I, I can see it. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Now, uh, totally random personal note. Do you collect art? It's funny because if you ask someone who buys like five photographs, I might ask them that question. Do you have a collection or is this your first time buying? And they hesitate and they go, oh, I'm not a collector. And then you find out they actually do have some good works. And you're like, okay, well, there's no definition really for collector. So I consider you a collector. I feel the same way. (laughs) No, I'm not a collector. I can't afford to buy what I sell. But having said that, I do have some photographs. If I see a beautiful work of art in another country, be it like jewelry or a cup or ceramics, I'm interested. So yeah, I have a few works, but I don't consider myself a collector. <laughs> I was I was not quantifying the definition of collecting, but like just having some stuff that you appreciate kind of thing, you know. I mean, you work in the industry. I would personally expect you to have one. Yeah, I mean, my husband's name is Joe. There's this fantastic unknown image I saw by Bernice Abbott of an old, it says Joe's Shoeshine Shop. And I saw it at an auction and I was like, I need to get that for him. But really, it was for me, but it had his name on it. So I felt like it was for him and I gifted it to him. And I love looking at that every single day. Okay. What's a Bernice Abbott? You know, come on. It's pretty good. Not a lot of people own a Bernice app. So speaking speaking of that, so like there's a difference in the art world between there's the secondary market and the, but there's also living artists utilizing the secondary market versus deceased artists that use or basic collectors selling the things they own from deceased artists. I've never understood why living artists participate in the auction industry. So like because to me, when I was in school auction quote-unquote like auction houses and stuff were always for dead artists but not for living artists so how did that even happen like how did living artists even get into that industry of working with auction houses so our sales are primarily secondary market which means you're a contemporary artist you're a living artist and you create have a great show and you're at your gallery and the whole show sells out there's none available the only way people can get it now is if it comes back on the market, that secondary market. So we specialize in taking those works that are not available through the gallery of a certain series and putting it up for auction. You can bid against each other. 
to be successful. So it doesn't really matter if you're, you know, no longer alive and it's a desirable work, or if you are alive and no one can get their hands on it. It's both a secondary market and people want to collect it. Oh my God, that makes so much more sense. So what you're saying is, is that it's not the artists, the living artists themselves, like out of their studio that takes it to an auction house. It's when there's nothing available on the market because that person is sold out that then their work while they're still alive shows up in the secondary market. That makes so much more sense to me. So our consigners, which are our sellers, are mostly private collectors. I know you all are one of the top in the world, but like, how does that work? Like, I mean, this is going to be self-serving. My parents have a couple pieces in their collection that we're thinking about at some point, like disposing of in some way. Do people come to you? Do you like create relationships and then you approach them? Like, how do you even find these photographs to be able to auction them? It's a combination. So my job is to really be in the know in the industry. And I want to be in the know. I like talking to the biggest collectors around the world. I like going to art fairs. I enjoy learning and going to exhibitions. And then when you go to all these events, you speak to people with like-minded interests and collectors. And so if you have an idea of what's in their collection and what they're potentially looking to sell, or you could tell them what's strong in the market, and maybe they were thinking of selling that to purchase something else, then they'll be like, well, what would the estimate be? And then you could price it. Or a lot of people are saying like, hey, I want to sell this part of my photographs collection and focus on paintings. And so you'll price all that work for them. So a lot of it is relationship-based. But at the same time, we always want people, if you want to sell a photograph, please contact us. We'll have a conversation with you, review the property, and we'll tell you if it's a good fit for us and if we can be successful on your behalf. Because that's the balancing act, because like it might be an amazing photograph that's in somebody's collection, but maybe it doesn't fit with whatever you were doing as far as your upcoming auction, let's say. So like maybe you're focusing on more contemporary and it's a historical piece to a certain extent, like even on our side. Like, so let's say I have some amazing piece that I want to put into an auction. It might not be able to even go to auction for years because the timing might not be right. That's true. I mean, sometimes I'll review something. And I'll think, you know what, we're not so successful selling this artist or that's not our focus, our collector base. But if I can suggest another house that might be better for them, I will. Sometimes the answer is the secondary market is very soft right now for this artist. And I don't know if you'll be successful to sell it anywhere at the price point that you'd want to. Boy, it's so convoluted. There's so many factors on all this. The arts world never has just like one answer. It's always this whole series of answers. So when it comes to this kind of stuff, like what are some elements and some factors that come into like creating a value for something? I mean, I know there's, you know, previous sales, previous auctions, this kind of stuff. What other kind of things like you were talking about how, oh, so-and-so might be soft at a certain time period. What does that mean? Like that they're not people wanting to buy it or they're, the value is gone. How does somebody's value even go down? Oh, that little question? Um, no, that's a huge question. I mean, it's so, what's so great about my job is it's so contextual and so individualized per photographer that I could literally, I could answer that for specific photographers. Not that I would do that on this podcast, but in general to answer that, really the answer is certain artists are maybe popular a certain year and then the next year they're still desirable, but maybe not, don't have that bubble around them they did the year before. So maybe the price, the auction estimate Maybe it went down an increment or two. That's okay. It's still a strong market. It just, it fluctuates. So the value of an art piece, an artist, let's say a photographer, can fluctuate much like, like let's say, like the stock market. So it can go up and down over the course of the years. Correct. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind wow. of like my position is to be following all of this and understanding the market so that we can put out works that are most interesting at the right price point for our collectors. And our collectors, by the way, are anyone. I would imagine. I should hope so. But I mean, yeah. see, because like from my end as being a practicing artist, uh, we always talk about how you want to be growing your value every time you do an exhibition. It should be going up like 20 to 30 percent. Your prices, it's always should be like a nice linear thing going in the upward direction. So the idea that the value of my art after I die would then become a sort of a fluctuating thing just fascinates me. But I don't think that's a negative. I think that's Okay. I think as long as fluctuate. it's a high flux, as long as it's a high fluctuation, I'm fine <laughs> with that. <laughs> no, but you know, if like let's say a certain photographer has a huge show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art one year, 
maybe their prices will rise a little that year. And then after the exhibition, maybe they'll go down back to where they were before the exhibition. So it's not that they went down. There was just more interest because there was more awareness and knowledge out there based on articles and people are reading more about the artists that year. That's one of many examples. Yeah. I mean, I can think of like, um, oh God, who was it? Diane Arbus, like when the movies came out about her, I'm sure the interest in her work came up a lot, the kind of thing. So like, I mean, there's all kinds of different things that go on in the world that sort of increase, but nobody goes like down to zero. Nobody gets worthless. It's just sort of, it fluctuates in a certain range of prices. That's right. Okay. That's right. Great. But you brought up something about like the amount of work on the market and stuff like this. How about editions? I am utterly fascinated by editions and, and, and how they should be handled by living artists. Do you have any input on this? I'm not sure. Let me just, let's see. Um, a lot of artists have editions, for example, of 10. Okay. So just like a painter, that's unique, but in a photographer's edition of 10. So if they show all 10 at the gallery and it's really good and to lower price point because it's a multiple and all 10 sell out, there's now a demand for it. So there's nothing wrong with having additions if there's enough of a demand for them. And not saying, let's just say they sold five and there were five left and they sold over the next few years. I mean, additions are fantastic. It's like, then everyone gets to enjoy the image and not just one person per se. So I, I think additions are wonderful, obviously. But what size to make your addition? I mean, I would think that if you're, I've never worked in a gallery, let's be clear, and I do not work with artists directly. So you're asking something that's a little out of my wheelhouse, but I'll give you my my feedback from where I sit. I would think that, you know, having an addition that makes sense for where you are in your career. So I'm not sure if I was making an addition that I would do 100 if I didn't think I was going to sell all 100 of them, because then there's always a surplus and they'll never run out and then there'll never be a demand for them. I understand. That makes complete sense. With that, though, like, so when it comes to additions, let's see, the like on the secondary market. Okay. <laughs> I just had this conversation with somebody else. This is why I'm asking. Currently there's this whole thing of like tiered pricing where like number one through 10, let's say is one price and then t 10 through 20 is another price and 20 through 30 is like the highest price, which means that number 30 is technically like the most expensive slash the most valuable. But when I was young, number one was the most valuable and yet it's the cheapest under this tiered pricing. So like, I guess the question is, so on the secondary market, does that number in the edition make a difference? Not to me when I'm pricing. If you have a number from an edition of 10, if it's one of 10 or 10 of 10, I will price it the same. Really? Now, the person who bought one of 10 might say, well, when I bought it, I was told I have one of 10 and that makes it more special. And I'll have them try to get me to give a little bit of a higher estimate because they have one of 10. But from my point of view, that doesn't affect the final price. There are always going to be exceptions to everything in the art world, which I know drives people mad. But generally, that's my outlook. That's actually really good to know because like... It uh, as I said, in my impression, number one of 10 is more valuable than 10 of 10 kind of thing. But I also know there are collectors who collect like only certain numbers, like they love the number three, no matter how big the edition is, they always want to buy number three of the edition. I think they're a little OCD. But anyways, <laughs> I've never come across that. But that's, um, that's interesting. I know a collector that literally like chose a number and, and I believe it was probably number three. And every time they bought a piece of art they, that was an in addition, they always wanted to buy the number three. So their entire collection was the number three edition of everything they owned, which I thought was hilarious. I mean, I just feel like when people have these sets of rules for themselves to each their own and I'm supportive, <laughs> whatever is interesting to you. It worked for her. She enjoyed it. I thought, exactly. it, I thought it was hilarious. But okay, then along with that, because again, I'm a photographer and so I'm wondering, okay, what should I be doing as a living artist to a certain extent to make it easy for you in the future for my children and their inheritance and all this, like to be able to put stuff on the secondary market? Provenance and certificates of authenticity. Okay, let's start with certificates of authenticity. Should the artist be making them? Does it even matter? <laughs> Let's just start with those questions. Okay. Just as a reminder, every artist has their own situation, so I'm speaking very generally. Of course. Listen, a photograph should be signed, titled, dated, and have the edition number attached to it. That's crucial information. Now, 
if the artist just wants to actually sign the work and date it, I'd love a title and edition number. But if they want to put all that on directly with their own hand, that's fabulous. But it has to be viewable now because if you're going to take your photograph and have it flush mounted, meaning you cover the back with aluminum for a better presentation, and I can no longer see what was underneath it, that's not so helpful to me. But artists do everything because, you know, when it leaves their studio, they've signed it. So they're not always sure exactly the presentation that'll be done once it gets to the gallery. If they want to sign a label and have that information and attach it to the reverse of the work, great. I just want that information associated with the work and I don't want it to get lost. So a certificate of authenticity is great if that's the only thing that's going to come with it and it makes sense for the presentation. But people lose those all the time. I'm not against them, but it's just really important this work is signed so it's visible. And what format that is, I don't think matters as much. Right. But within the photography, there's been longstanding debate about what material to use to sign. I personally am of the pencil position. Whereas I know other people have other opinions on that. What, as a person who deals in, you know, historical as well as contemporary photographs, what's the preferred method? It's funny. The artist that comes to mind immediately who used a pencil would be Ansel Adams for one decade before he switched to pen. Or no, sorry, he went back to pencil after using pen. I don't know if I'm so crazy about pencil. I feel like it's a little more permanent to have ink. And I, it's the permanence that, I think is really important for the history of the work. But having said that, Ansel Adam, you know, used pencil. So his works, you know, it's still visible. If push came to shove, I think I'm going to say pen or ink. (gasps) I'm I'm so saddened. Okay, I've been doing it wrong this whole time. No, nothing. Nothing's wrong in the art world. Nothing. It's, It's really you're putting out your work. And if that's your presentation, then it's right. Yeah, I was taught when I was in school by my old school professors that uh, photography should be signed in pencil because the graphite is a more permanent thing than an ink, which will fade over time. Now, don't get me wrong. When I say over time, we're talking 100 years. <laughs> so No, I mean, I, I, there's plenty of Robert Franks on the market with faded signatures. You do. It, you know, I guess it does depend on the ink you use. I don't have the answer of the type of ink to use, but there's some signatures from like 70 years ago that are faded and some from 70 years ago that look great. So again, I don't know about the different inks, but that's a good point to bring up. You have to be careful on what ink you use. Yeah, I know. Somebody told me India ink is really great for it. It's very permanent. Then it becomes like all about the signature because the signature is so big and bold. And, all. and so I like pencil because I think it's, it's soft, it's subtle, it doesn't detract from the image. It's a personal opinion, I know. So it's my it's actually, my it's a really opinion. good question for a conservator. I should, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll address that with the next conservator I get on. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. And I'll be listening. Okay, great. So um, provenance. What do you consider provenance? Like, because uh, the re- I'm being so very selfish in this question. My father owns, well, my parents, I shouldn't say my father. My father <laughs> bought a piece for my parents. They're both still alive, just had their 80th birthday. Very, very good. So they, um, they own a piece and they don't have like the receipt or anything like that, but he has a handwritten letter by the artist saying that he sold to this piece to my father. So like, what constitutes a provenance? Like, obviously, a bill of receipt would be spectacular, but most people misplace those over time. That is a loaded question. So when you're selling a work at auction, it's people want to know, where was this work prior to me? How did it get from the artist to your auction? And they want to know everything in between. And we want to provide that information. So fortunately, a lot of works, you know, with contemporary works, you often have the gallery label. And so there's a direct provenance to the gallery that represented the artist. That's great. For earlier works, yeah, you really, it's important to have that train of um, the letter is a great source of provenance. I mean, that's perfect if you don't have the bill of sale. So it is important that people track it. And again, you really want to go all the way back to the artist if you can, because for some collectors, that is important. They don't want things like popping up 20 years after it was made, that it was in a private collection in New York. It's a little empty. So different people look at provenance a little more deeply than others. And provenance can be super interesting and add intrigue to a work and add value to it. Because if it was in someone major's collection really early on before the artist was popular per se, people might be like, oh, 
wow, if this collector who was so fantastic and has such a good eye, it was in their collection, you know, it adds a little more interest. It's exciting. Yeah. So speaking of that, you've also been on the Antiques Roadshow. Yes. <laughs> Huge fan. Love it. How did that even come about? Like, I mean, of all the possible photo specialists they could have chosen, what brought them to you in the first place? I think what brought them to me was I have a colleague at Phillips who had been on the show in the past and she's no longer on it. And the producer was looking for someone for photographs and he called her and asked, do you know anyone who could fill the medium of photographs for the show? There are a few photographs experts on. They switch us around and she recommended me. And so that's really how it all started. And what's that experience like? Because I'm sure you get some absolute junk that it's just like, why are you bringing this to me? And then on the other hand, you probably find some absolute sort of like pristine things that you're like, oh my God, I had no idea this still existed. We've been looking for it for decades kind of stuff. Yeah, I have to say it's the most incredible experience to be on that show. Pre-COVID, I'm going to refer to because policies change. You're sitting at a table for about 10 plus hours <laughs> with a little lunch break. And you have a line of people who are showing you photographs or different objects that have something photographic about it. And you're expected to say something about everything. And you don't always know the value of what you're looking at or exactly what you're looking at. But what I've learned is it's really about the interaction and having a discussion and sharing whatever you do know about the object, even if it's not the final answer. It's the fact that someone could have a discussion about something they've lived with their whole life or they grew up with in their mother's home and say, oh, that's interesting. It's similar to this object I've seen in the past. And that object has this value. So I might apply it to this. What's also really fun about the photographs table is, I'll be honest, it's not the most popular table in Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> and so as a guest, often you're allowed to bring two items to show two different experts. So a lot of people have something they're focused on for another expert. And then as they're leaving their house, they're like, oh, shoot, I get to bring one more object. Grab that photo of grandma. And so we just get these a lot of people just grabbing last minute family photographs as their second object and then showing me and telling me that's what they did. And, you know, a lot of time these are really cool, like early 19th century photographs, tintypes, daguerreotypes. And so I can explain to them what it is. They often have no idea. And it's the human interaction that actually is the most fantastic part of working for Antiques Roadshow. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of people, they don't necessarily know the stories behind them and they don't even need to know the value of it. But a lot of people just want to be a little bit more informed about what it is that they've been keeping around the house for, you know, generations. And I love having that. I love being that person and having that conversation with them and just sharing a little knowledge and letting them know where it falls in what I've seen in my experience. Have you found any great, amazing, valuable things in your time? Yes, I actually have an episode that's coming up in the next few months. And I know, I don't think I can say what it is. Um, or I probably could, I but I don't want to I can bleep <laughs> it out. I love but bleeping it's, things. It's really good. It's a really good photograph. And it's the best thing I've ever found from my experience on the show. And um, I have a pretty good segment on it, I believe. So, uh, okay, well, tell us what city it's in so we know which episode to look for. <laughs> Fair enough. It's in New Hampshire. Okay, good. Yeah, because otherwise I'll just be watching every episode waiting for it. <laughs> Actually, I think each location now is split into three episodes. So I don't know which episode for New Hampshire, but it's one of the three. And it's it's pretty exciting. <laughs> oh, I feel teased. All right, that's fine. It, I know it is a tease. I, I can quickly say the first thing I ever showed on the program, you know, we're, we're there to make a TV show. We're, we're there to find something interesting and talk about it because so many people relate to these objects and that's what's exciting about the show and that's what we're trying to achieve for the public me being one of them like i love watching other experts talk about something i might have seen many times but never knew really what the use was or how cool an object it was i pitched on my first show a 1920s headshot of a head clown from the circus and <laughs> we were at the barnum estate in sarasota florida so it made sense for the location it, it was just like so random, but so cool once I delved into the history of this head clown, which of course I did not know on the spot. I did have to look up, but I mean, it's just, it's fun stuff like that. 
do people really believe that that you all are just like an encyclopedia of this knowledge? Or, and I mean, I would assume that of course you're going to have to look up specialized information about stuff. But do, like, do people really like just like get sort of upset? Like, why do you not know this stuff off the top <laughs> of your head? I, I think the, that clown of the 1920 circus is a good example of like why would anyone expect I knew that information? But to be fair. That's what's so incredible about being surrounded by these experts. They do know a lot of the information. So sometimes they fact check themselves and will look up little bits of information. But if it's not something as specialized as my example, the knowledge is there. I mean, it's pretty incredible. You know, good fact checking and, and adding to what they know, but the knowledge is there. All right. Now, okay. Changing back to the auction stuff. I've always been fascinated because my professors beat into me like the idea of archivalness, archivalness, archivalness. So, you know, using archival papers, doing archival processes, all this kind of stuff. From your side of the industries, how important do collectors perceive the nature of the archival materials, archival processes, all this kind of stuff? Is it important to them? Should I be caring about all this so much? Absolutely. Archival is really important. I'm sorry to tell you. You want that archival. I was really hoping you would say no, because the no, non-archival stuff, materials are so much cheaper. I know, but then they might get like sunburned more easily, not hold the color as well, or the gelatin silver prints might start fading and become attenuated. And you want all that archival information. All right, fine. <laughs> but what... <laughs> But along with that, though, because I've had, I just, again, recently had this conversation, like, how important is archival glass and archival matting and all this kind of stuff, like the UV protectant museum glass and all that? Again, like, do collectors care if the, the, it's been, you know, kept in this kind of stuff, or is it not as important? I think it's pretty important. Now, I work on the side that I'm vetting all this property, so I'm looking at thousands of photographs a year that are coming to me. And if it doesn't look good, and I don't know what the circumstances are, I don't know if it was in, you know, UV glass or not. All I know is when I see that final product unframed in front of me, if it doesn't look good, I'm not going to put it in my auction. It makes sense. I get it. It's sad. It just means a little more effort, more expense for us as practicing artists because we have to use those good materials. I know, but there's a lot of color photographers from the 1980s, and they're, at that time, the technology wasn't there, and so a lot of their works are attenuated. And so if it's age-appropriate for the time and the artist, that's different. Fair enough. I mean, what about the differences? Like, So are you seeing a different collector interest, let's say, in color prints from the 70s and 80s versus digital versus silver gelatin versus even archive, uh, you know, historical stuff. So that your amber types, daguerreotypes, this kind of stuff, like, is there a, a, a waxing and waning of interest in this or is it sort of going in one direction or another? No, I, I think there's interest in most of those categories right now. I think it has to do with rarity and quality. I mean, that, that secret word connoisseurship, it's got to have all the bells and whistles. Connoisseurship, that's the secret word. <laughs> Meaning it's got to have the right color, the provenance, be printed at the right time, be the right subject. You know, overall, does it feel like a great print for that artist? If the answer is yes, that's what people want. Fair enough. So we've talked about how, like, you look at works and how you choose work. How do you put together an auction? So, like, when you, you say, okay, we have an auction coming up in whatever, October kind of thing. How do you put that all together? Like, is it from multiple different people? Like, I know we hear about like one big collection kind of being auctioned off, but like, it do you, is it sort of based around a theme, a topic, a time period? Like, how do you put it together to make it so it's sort of attractive for the buyers? Because, you know, you want to put up multiple things in an auction that like a collector might want. So they would want to go all the way there because they're not going to want to travel all the way there just for the possibility of getting one thing. So you've got to sort of finagle like how much of something and what to put into a catalog. So like what how do you do make those kinds of decisions? Okay, there's two points you touched on that I want to address. I ask very convoluted questions, I know. Go ahead. Okay, so if we're putting aside private collections and a theme sale, our general main auctions, we hold four a year, two in New York and two in London. 
So our next big sale, I know you said October, but I'm going to focus on the task at hand. It's April 6th, and we're three weeks away from our deadline. So that is what we're focused on. Our general sales is a mix of property, about 300 lots. And I'm really looking at the most desirable works on the secondary market and a good variety by artist between classic and contemporary and by price point. I'm trying to have something for everyone that is the highest caliber. Okay, so you intentionally try to get something from every time period, every price point. That, I mean, that that's interesting because like in my mind, I would have thought it would have been like, I don't know, something different. I mean, I'm not, I don't have a list that I like check off. Like I have 20 works from the 1920s. Check, you know, it's really what's the most desirable work on the market. <laughs> that's what I'm focused on. How do you figure out what the most desirable works on the market is? I mean, like, I, I'm not asking for some sort of proprietary information kind of thing, no, but, of like, but like, how do you, how do you keep up with that? Because I, I would imagine that's an ever evolving thing. So like what's interesting or hot now? I mean, I, I guess you meant you already answered it when you talked about how, like, if somebody has an exhibition at MoMA, then they're probably going to be hot in the next year or so kind of thing. I love the disclaimer, like you don't have to share anything secret. There's like no secret in how we put together our sale. I wish I had some some like chart that I could look at and had all the secrets and I follow it. Okay, just to be clear, in my mind, you do have that. There, there is, there is some <laughs> thing, some, some like it's like a secret stock market type thing that you all, you auction houses share with each other that we don't, as the public, don't know about. So that doesn't exist. Not for my department. Okay, I'll fair speak enough. for myself. No, it's more intuitive. I have a great group of colleagues. So it comes, it actually comes down to the people at the end of the day and who you work with. And my team and I, we have a good idea of what the collectors we work with are looking for. And we also are eyes open and networking and hearing what other people are looking for, what's selling well at the art fairs, what shows are doing well. We do pay attention to what museum exhibitions are coming up, but that in itself is not an indicator of like, this artist has an exhibition coming up. We need his works. So it has to be part of a bigger picture. And then we know what decades and images are most desirable or we think speak to us as experts. And so we put that out there and share that knowledge with our collectors. So it's just kind of, you just have to be out there and keep learning and reading and viewing. We really have to be out and about. We can't be hiding in your office. It's not a desk job. <laughs> It's also ever evolving. I mean, like, you That's know, right. like what Vivian Mare, like nobody even heard of her, what, 20 years ago. And now she's like the darling of the industry kind of thing. I mean, even if you have knowledge, that knowledge changes over time. So it's it's not a static thing that like you can just literally like reference a book and say like, oh, they're here then this catalog or this art history book and that's what we have to base it on like it's continually changing and in some ways that's magnificent and in some ways that makes it so hard you know what's really interesting is you just named an, a photographer and you gave an opinion on what you felt about that photographer oh no i didn't i didn't give my opinion about a, a vivian mary i i have a very strong opinion about her but go on but you referred to her as a darling of the industry that's how you you know referenced her what's great about the market is that not everyone agrees and everyone has such different interests. And that's what I like being in the middle of. So I, I do have opinions. But when I put together the strongest sale I can, that sometimes has to be a little muted. If I know there are collectors looking for certain artists and certain time period and certain works that have the right value for our sales, it doesn't matter what I personally think of it. I'm really responding to the public and our collectors. And of course, obviously, I do have you know, final say on things and what I feel. But really, it's about what's being collected right now. Okay, does subject matter vary? I, you know, like I'm thinking landscape photography. I mean, obviously, I'm thinking like Ansel Adams versus, you know, I don't know, uh, George Hurl. Like, so, like, is it portraits? Is it landscapes? Does does the subject matter change as far as the interest, or is it pretty consistent that there will always be landscape collectors, there will always be portrait collectors, always be reportage collectors, you know, this kind of thing? Or does it actually sort of ebb and flow in the same way? I would say it ebb and flows, but having said that, some of that will be included in each sale. You mentioned that you only did your photo auctions in New York and London. Why only in New York and London? Well, we have a few other selling locations as a company. 
But for the photographs department, it is a little bit of a niche industry in the sense of we do bring together such an excellent group of works and sell so globally in each location that at this point, we don't need to have another auction in another location. If the market gets stronger, I think the next place we'd consider would actually be in Hong Kong in those offices. And that is somewhere we're kind of looking to to grow for our market. Well, I mean, that's the reason why I'm asking is like, is that where the most collectors are? I guess the question, okay, wait, I guess the question would be, are the collectors, since you say you do your primary auctions in New York and London, are most of the collectors in New York and London, or are they like, do you have a, like a high percentage of like online or phone bidders and this kind of stuff? Or like, do most of the people who truly want to buy physically show up? Okay. Just to clarify, as a company, we do auctions equally in New York, London, and Hong Kong. And then we have a few other locations, but I'm just fo- talking about the photographs department. Um, Correct. Yes. Okay. So for the photographs department. No, it's incredible. We have a global market thanks to our digital initiatives by Philips. We were kind of like prepped to move forward with all these enhancements prior to COVID. And then COVID pushed us forward a little faster, but we were ready for it. And because we have so many features that we can offer people around the world just by signing onto their computer or their phone, it's really easy to bid anywhere. And because of that, we had bidding in 44 countries in our last sale. Now, just think about that for a second. That's like... I had to pause before that went our press release because I had to make sure that was accurate. I mean, that's a that's a COVID type thing. Like prior to COVID, even though we had great sales, I don't think we had bidding in 44 countries in a photograph sale. No, that's quite ridiculous. I mean, you know, like in the old days, I mean, God, what, 30 years ago, you physically had to be in the room to talk, to bid on anything, you know? I mean, sure, I guess there were phone things, but those are just like super rich people, I assume. I don't know. I'm not one of those people that actually attends the auctions. So I'm just going off of TV, movies, and other romanticized <laughs> ideas of auctions. So like when, when these kinds of things, okay, so I have not looked at your technologies that you're using, but I'm wondering when you put an, a piece up for auction, do you show like 360 degrees, like is the front of the photograph as important as the back of a photograph? Because like I'm thinking paintings, a lot of people who like buy paintings online and through auctions, they want to see the stretcher bars and the marks on the back of the painting and things like this, possibly even the signature on the back. Is that the same with a photograph? Do you actually represent both the front and the back or, or unframed or what other kinds of ways to show it off? Absolutely. If you're buying a $200,000 Edward Weston from us, you should see the back of that print. You you should see why it's worth $200,000. And that's really important. Now on our website, we might not show the back of each print. We do for certain prints, but not for everything. But if you're interested, you need to contact myself or one of my colleagues, the auction house. You just push the button and you're right with us. And then we'll talk to you about the print and we'll send you images of the front, back, post-ups on any aberrations on the print you should be aware of provided further provenance. We'll even do a video, like a FaceTime with you and do a video under Raking Light. I mean, we want you to see exactly what you're purchasing. And technology allows us to do that these days. And it's, it's incredible. It really is. Like, I've even thought about like contemporary artists and how we should be thinking about like doing, like, I'm thinking like those product shots that are on like, you know, I don't know. ASOS and all the other things where they like spin the product around 360 degrees to show us the full view of the shoes or whatever we're going to buy. Like, why aren't we doing that for art? Why aren't we showing it like under different lighting situations and 360 degrees? We have this like perceived idea that art uh, art is just like a, an object that's seen in one place and you see one image of it and you think like it's either magnificent or it's not, but it, it, it has a life and it, like light interacts with it. There's different sides to it, but no, that's, that's a super important. Thing. For photographs, we don't do that for obvious reasons. But for works in the contemporary art department, like a sculpture or design piece, we do 360 views on our website. Okay, good. Absolutely. I think we should all be doing that. I think that's quite utterly (laughs) fascinating. All right. So in your private life, like, do you have like animals, (laughs) hobbies, is there anything? (laughs) Not answering. Got it. Okay, fair enough. It's fine. Um, I do like trousers. All right, you pulled it out of me. I have a preference for schnauzers. Schnauzers. I love them. I'm trying to picture a schnauzer in my mind. What's a schnauzer? What? Well, I'm just trying to put a picture in my mind. Schnauzer. I've been to Prague and I've seen schnauzers in Prague because I took a picture of one. I'm quite certain. Oh, I, I just, I, uh, schnauzer. 
I don't even know how to spell that. Schnauzer. I'm trying to Google it. What's a schnauzer? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, schnauzer. Okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I know the word. I just couldn't sort of picture the dog. Got it. Okay. Um, do you have any sort of advice uh, moving forward, though? So, like, I mean, it could be for a young person who wants to get into the auction industry, or it could be for young artists and how to work with the auction industry. Any sort of sort of insight that, like, you know, that I'm always looking for the things that aren't obvious, the things that were like, no shit, I never thought about that. Anything like that? Yeah, maybe. You know, it worked for me to be in contact with the alumni house of my college. That worked well. Networking in an appropriate manner is very helpful. And that can be with friends or people you're introduced to casually or going to art openings or just being at events where, you know, people are discussing topics and fields you want to be involved in. But wait, networking is a it's a dirty word, of course, to many people. But like, I'm, I'm great at networking. I can meet people. I can talk to people, all that kind of stuff. What I find hard for that is how to find that right balance of not being too friendly and also not being too professional. Like there's the right amount of sort of networking. And, and I always screw it up horribly. Like I either end up going out drinking with them and we become great friends and then they never do business with me or I end up being overly businesslike and they think I'm far too serious and they don't want to do business with me. So it's like, how do you find that right balance of like being friendly but still being professional? I think that's really a difficult situation people are in. So that's a good question. I mean, it really depends on the context of where you are and who you're talking with what feels most appropriate, what feels right. If you take a step in the wrong direction, that's okay. Just try to correct it when you're next in a social situation. If you're at a museum opening, having a good conversation about the artist and something relevant to what you're looking at feels most appropriate. And if appropriate, mentioning where you are in your career and what you're looking to do, never ever ask someone directly, like, any openings that you, where you're working or can you keep me in mind? I know for myself, when I have people say that to me, it's not that I don't want to keep them in mind. It's just a very easy thing for them to say. And then I walk away from the party and I'm like, okay, I don't really have that person's resume or know much about them. And now I'm supposed to be looking at our HR listings like, you know, every month and thinking of this person. It's just not realistic. So maybe if that, for me, what worked is when I reached out to people and maybe this is something I could have said in person if that had been more relevant was I'm really interested in your career path. If you have time for a coffee and informationally to learn about what you're doing, I am open to that, especially if there's some connection on where this came from. And I'll be honest, if someone says that to me and I don't have time to do it or I'm in a deadline and for whatever reason, I will pass that to someone else in my industry and someone will get back to them. I know a lot of people helped me to get where I am and I'm happy to help other people. And I think most people feel the same way. Yeah, I know. It's one of those things where like, the quote, like, as I said, like to me, networking in the arts industry is like a, a bad word, like almost a curse word to many people. It's just making friends and being friendly and being enjoyable to work with. But like, as soon as you start to manipulate it, like to tr like, as soon as you like are trying to get something out of somebody, that's when it goes wrong. That's right. You know, if someone starts calling me a little too often, that gets uncomfortable and that happens. And I know this person means well. Um, and I want to help them and I try, but there is that fine line that you just have to be, you have to have awareness, self-awareness. Um, and, and really people need to take internships and not be too picky on what their first job is or where they're starting. But if they want to switch careers, just get your foot in the door and you'll meet people and that can take you to the next step. Just to be clear, in Europe, internships uh, legally have to be paid. You, you cannot do unpaid internships in the EU, as far as I understand it, but certainly not in this region. So um, the, um, the Americas, from what I understand, is the only place that does the unpaid internship. So if you want a paid internship, come to Europe. Yeah, well, to be fair, in Phillips, we only do paid internships. Marvelous. But obviously that was not the case when I was at Sotheby's a long time ago. Because I worked as an intern for a long, many, many, many months unpaid. And that was okay. I was totally fine with it. It was to get my foot in the door and it, and it worked. So it's just about opportunities that come to you and making the best of it. All right. Any other advice? Maybe for artists? You know, I don't, I've never in my career worked directly with artists. Okay. 
So back to the art auctioneer industry then. <laughs> and the thing is, is like a lot of people think also like when I say, okay, well, side note, what should I title this episode? I generally put like what the person does. Like you're not an auctioneer because that's the person who stands there with the gavel, go blah, 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 like really fast talking. So like you're, you're the behind the scenes person. You're the person that preps for it. But so is there a simple title for what you do versus your very long, very uh, impressive title? On the title comment, I have gone through many titles at Phillips because I started at true level. I've never been hung up on titles. And I, I've, through the years, I've, I've seen people interested in their titles and that's totally fine to each their own, but a recommendation to people focus on actually what you're doing. I wouldn't worry about the title. It'll come later. Or even if it doesn't come at all, I don't find them so important. So I've never been caught up on them. And I, and I do find my, my title a little long winded. I'll be honest, especially when people forget to mention the Phillips part and they just say worldwide head of photographs. And I'm like at Phillips. <laughs> like I did. That's great. Okay. <laughs> um, what was your question again? Okay. So advice, any other advice? I think just keep putting yourself out there, looking for the opportunities, taking the internship that might not be your first choice, but then you'll meet people in industry. You can go out and socialize. They'll introduce you to other people and you'll socialize. And these are the connections that might help you in the future. Yeah. Before we started recording, we, you and I were talking about how like a lot of these jobs and internships that we do in our youth are, are not necessarily the things that sort of lead us down the path, but they actually tell us what path we don't want to go down. Because I've had my fair share of horrible jobs that basically taught me I do not want to have a job like that in the future versus this is the the stepping stone of a career towards something. And, and a lot of the young people, they think that everything needs to be a stepping stone in a direct line to a career that they want. Whereas a lot of times you can just learn what you don't want to be doing. Absolutely, which is why internships are so great. And I know a lot of universities now have built in internships for that reason. I, I didn't. Um, but what you're referring to is my internship at the Peabody Essex Museum. I love that internship, just to be clear, and I love that museum. But I very quickly realized I didn't want to work in a museum. I wanted more business along with the art aspect of my career. And that's not what you got necessarily in the position I was in. And so then I canceled museums off what I was looking to pursue. It, it was just so helpful and unexpected. Oh, yeah. I worked in a stock photography agency, and I realized I never want to look at stock photography ever again. <laughs> It's the it's the most banal, like nondescript photographic process ever. Like I'm, you yeah. just reminded me of something by saying that. Just like I ended up working at an auction house, you might not know your career exists. Like I didn't know about auction houses when I was younger. You know, once you start looking around, whoever would have thought about like for me, art insurance? Actually, that's kind of cool. You're doing appraisals and viewing great collections and researching it for the fair market value. That's something I never thought I'd be looking into, but I w would have been interested. It's just all these careers started opening up that I just didn't know were in existence. So it's really when you read these art magazines and you see companies listed, if you don't know what it is, maybe look into it and it might be like a different career path than you expected and a new opportunity that you never would have looked into. Speaking of that, how much of your job, so let's say on a 40 hour of work, week, assuming you actually only work 40 hours. I know that's cute. Let's say theoretically you only worked 40 hours a week. How many hours of the week do you spend doing research versus doing like relationship building? Okay. That is cute. I work a lot more than 40 hours a week, but I don't know if I can quantify that, but it's a, it's a split and certain weeks are more research. Certain weeks are more travel. Sometimes I have to remind myself to sit down and read an artist's book because I actually need to know more about the artist in depth than what I get, you know, visiting an exhibition. Sometimes I'm just putting together proposals for almost a full week. Sometimes I'm in meetings for more than I'd like in a week. <laughs> um, that's actually why I love working in an auction house. You're, you're, no week is ever the same. And it's so exciting. You're in the office, you're out of the office, you're in another country, you're here, that you're there. I like that fast pace. I like the stress, the deadlines, my colleagues. To me, this is all very exciting and it works for my personality. I was going to say that takes a very special kind of personality to enjoy those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I'm like, yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess I do because I've been here 17 years and I love my job. And this brings us back to the people. It's really important who you work with. Because I think if I was working with the same set of people in a different industry, I might like it 
I might love it just as much. All right. That's a lovely way to end. <laughs> that it's all about the people. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the entire episode. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends, family, coworkers, studio mates, or anybody with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website at wisefoolpod.com.